Hey everybody, welcome back to Reapley's Multi-Useiverse. My name is Gar Punnett, Chief of Staff here at Reapley and Circular Economy Lead. We had the great experience today of talking to James George, formerly of the uh, fantastic and leading Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and now the future-focused and inclusion-focused leader, Pixera Global. Um, all of our conversation was focused around what does it mean for a circular economy to be more inclusive, um, and what does this mean for a more sustainable future, and how are we actually getting there with the partnerships, the collaborations, um, the actual uh, cohesive and co-opetition that's needed um, to actually make these business solutions possible. Take a listen. James, thank you so much for joining us um, at the Multiuseverse podcast. Um, we have known each other for a couple of years. I know you from all the good work too regularly that you put on LinkedIn, whether you're you know going and planting trees or we're following you through <laughs> some sort of journey. Um, could you give the audience a little bit of a background on who you are and what you've been pursuing over the last couple of years? Yeah, of course. And, and, and thanks for having me, right? I, I think I'm guest number seven. Yes, so I exactly. Feel, yep. I feel fairly privileged to be <laughs> here in the early days. So when, so in, in years to come, when folks look back at the origins of the podcast, I'll be like, I was there in the beginning. I, it's because I, of I, you. I, That's how it's going to happen. It's because of you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, no, absolutely not. We're all, we're all part, we're all advocates in this, in this journey. Um, yeah, it's been a good couple of years, right? Like I think two, we were just saying 2019 since I, I met you, you last when I was then at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Um, so for those who don't know, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, accelerating the transition to a circular economy, a thought leader, global thought leader in the space of a circular economy. And I spent about three and a half years with them, um, helping to build the network um, that they have they have today. But, but I guess I'd distill that really specifically on when the foundation looks at its narrative around the economic argument for a circular economy, which is really important in today's global economy, we, again, we're talking about economics, um, helping businesses, organizations to understand what they meant when they outlined their aspirations around circular economy. So I guess I, I spend a lot of my time telling stories and helping folks to try and translate when they use this big nebulous term of circular economy, what that could hopefully mean for their day to day. Um, and that journey was amazing. I had three and a half amazing years working with some truly, truly phenomenal folks um, and still very well connected with all of them. But um, I then decided to, to do something slightly different, um, which led me to Pixera Global um, about six months ago now. And I, I'm a strategic advisor to, to the CEO and the exec team at, at, at Pixera Global. And their focus is slightly broader than circular economy, but but I guess the, the best way to describe it is historically they were in the space of international development. Most recently, when we think about a circular economy lens, their focus is really around the social impact element. Social impact, environmental justice, just transition. We've been hearing a lot of these these sort of phrases, phrases recently. Um, and they um, focus in very much about how do we create an inclusive circular economy. Because yes. when you think about society, economy, environment, a lot of the, the work we see now, a lot of the um, declarations that are made by businesses, organizations focus on the economics yep. and they focus on the environment. The bit they miss historically is the social component. So what we're doing there is only creating a partial solution. We're missing out this big swathe of humanity, social inclusion, 
human capital, however you want to package that up. And actually, if we think about long-term resilience, we need to factor that in as much as we do the economic argument and the environmental argument. So that's that's kind of me on my jet. And, and I've been trying to just tell that story as simply as I can um, over the last few years. And I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, we are in the same space of always trying to break down probably the language around circular economy, make it more accessible uh, to a lot of the enterprise, maybe clients that we serve, maybe even government um, listeners and, and clients that we might serve. How do you how do you find that that's frankly just best done breaking down what the circular economy actually means to their to each constituency, whether on the enterprise level that might be uh, customers or on the government level that is actually uh, a taxpaying body or or their um, again the, the people that they serve. Um, I always find again you know we, we keep learning language um, every yeah. every uh, probably every week now where it's like, oh wait, this um, investment recovery department actually does this component of circular economy. Um, how do you find that you actually can connect dots best at these enterprise? How do you how do you actually go about doing that? I think it's a really interesting question. And this is, this I guess this is the space that I spend most of my time because yep. it's the bit that interests me the most as well. And I get back to that idea and, and people talk a lot these days about big storytellers, but, and, and it's a bit, it's a bit kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, but there's, there's an element to it, right? Because you've got to meet people where they are. Circular economy, regenerative economics, donut economics, all of, you know, the green economy, a car, a low carbon economy, all of these phrases carry a huge level of scientific rigor that sits behind it. But actually nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, folks want to know what it means to them in their day-to-day life, be that professionally, personally, or, or, or otherwise. So for myself, I've always taken the approach of using a $3 word rather than a $25 exactly. word. Right? You know, how do you break this down so that individuals um, can understand that journey I love this. Sorry, this is perfect. No, nope. this is for anybody who's listening. It's a classic COVID moment here where we've been invaded by a, a, a cute um, child. Yes. Um, but we left off um, where you were talking about using $3 yeah, words. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I, I always, I always kind of think if I can explain this to my dad, then I'm on the right route you know if i can you know if i can use language actually for someone who doesn't care about this space in in conventional terms but actually you know just wants to know how they can do things better or make better choices like you you hear people talk about you could there are only bad choices in a bad system for me it's all about the story and that story that language that narrative that framing needs to change depending on whether you're talking to a large Fortune Global 500, you know, the CFO, or if you're talking to the guys and girls on the shop floor, or you're talking to people in the supply chain, or you're talking to people in the community, you've got to change that narrative to to what will resonate with them. Ultimately, what we're asking people to do is to do something different for what they've done for the last two to 300 years in the linear economy. You know, this idea of taking stuff out of the ground, making products, buying them and when they're no longer useful, throwing them away and buying another one. We've we've built that economy over a couple of industrial revolutions. We've connected people globally. We've generated trillions of dollars. We've lifted millions of people out of poverty. And now we're saying to them, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for a whole host of fundamental reasons that we can't get into all of them on on the podcast today, but it doesn't work. And we need to redesign 
the world around us so that we can still have choice, so that we can still have growth. But so that choice and growth is restorative and regenerative rather than the consumptive and extractive model of take, make, waste or, you know, the linear economy that we have today. So, so it is very much about understanding um, where that story needs to meander, depending on who you're, who you're talking to. And despite the fact I've just kind of monologued at you for about four or five minutes, for me, that, that starts with listening, understanding where people are in that journey. And this can also sometimes go as well, be quite emotive. I mean, if you peel all of this back, it, it can almost be considered transformational change management. You know, you have the folks who, who want to change, the folks that don't, and the folks that are ambivalent and everyone else in between. And you've got to meet each one of those where they are. Because, <laughs> because actually, she is, she or he is a force. I don't she, know. She, she, she is yeah. a force to be reckoned with. That's she's fantastic. Also, she's, she's also due to go to bed. So um, I hope she might be going there sooner rather than later. But yeah, um, you've got to meet people where they are. No, that's that's I, what you're saying takes me back to probably actually an earlier moment at Reapley where um, it, it became really clear that uh, our messaging maybe maybe was off, and this was probably about two and a half years ago, where um, it quite simply was put to us that hey, by using Reapley's technology, I can now put on my resume that I helped save my department X amount of dollars um, and, and helped actually uh, conserve these amount of resources enough for sh- and then have the data to actually justify that to her boss. And it was like, that yeah. was sort of a clarifying moment where I was like, oh, okay, yes, you do care about all the language that we use in circular economy. Yes, it's, it's impactful. Yes, you understand the purpose. But at the core of it, you need something that helps you do your job better or you need something that helps you succeed in your career to a certain degree uh, better so that you maybe can get another um, career uh, improvement or something. And that became really, that became very real for us to the point where we are now really looking at how do we support more champions for reuse? How do we support more champions for circular economy in each one of these fields or industries or organizations? And so I think what you said there really spoke to me because that, that's always what it takes us back down to. And, and often I think we, we still are trying to do this. Is, um, how do you broadcast circular economy at scale to the point where yeah. it can now actually be distilled and resonate into different channels appropriately? And that's really probably our next effort is, is how do we sort of have the banner of the, of the mission, but really yeah. at its core speak to those, uh, those individuals. And there's, there's a couple of key points that you pulled out there, which is which I find fascinating. When you again you think about this idea of systems change, creating new systems. The current system exists to deliver the results that we see. Right, it's been perfectly refined and designed to push out what we see now, the results we see. So we can't expect it to do anything different, because in doing so, as you know, if we expect it to do something different, it won't. It's madness. You would just say you're going to be knocking your head against a brick wall. We need new systems. But the problem is, if you've then got the folks within those systems measured and weighed by particular KPIs, by particular growth metrics, by particular um, remuneration packages, that system's not going to change. Right. Not with all of the will and the effort, because you know, to your point, whether it's convenience or whether it's um, development or, or whether it's just time, 
those are the bits that are going to motivate people. There's this great statistic that does the rounds, and I'll, I'll caveat it with the fact that 25% of all statistics are made up on the spot. Mm-hmm. But it's something like um, a couple of years ago in the US, someone surveyed around sort of four to 8,000 people and asked them about what they care about around environmental factors, sustainability, circular economy. And it was something like when asked, upwards of 90% of folks said they would make better choices um, if they knew what those choices were and, and, and the products they could pick within the store if they knew they had a greater level of sustainable or green credentials. But that 90, upwards of 90% would drop to something like 8% when you get to the till, when you get to the checkout. Hmm. Because if you are a single parent, for example, with you know two or three children, what is your priority? You know, feeding your kids, providing for your family. And it doesn't even have to be a single parent, right? If you are a family, what's your priority? Providing for your children. And actually, if you have to prioritize buying a slightly cheaper product that has worse credentials, because actually that's what you need to do. You need to feed your children. That's what you're going to opt for. So I think your point around sort of how do we measure success? How do we measure success for individuals? How do we create the right kind of spheres of influence? Um, what is the language we need to use? It's really important to set that set that system on a different path or to create a new system. This shouldn't be the ambition of those who can engage with it from an economic perspective or from a social perspective. These need to be changes within the way we consume, manufacture, distribute stuff um, and keep that circulating in the economy so that everyone can make the right choice. That's the, that's the scenario I want to get to, but it's very, very complicated and it's extremely complex. Um, and that's why the right story helps folks you know, get on that right journey. I, I could not agree more. But what's the, you know, we're, we're often trying, you know, okay, so a little peek behind our curtain here. We've, we've got our business model. It's, it's uh, you know, we are a, a SaaS platform. We charge a, a monthly revenue. Um, we, we take a certain amount of transaction fees if we connect sort of, again, resources to be uh, reused externally from maybe our client organizations. Um, but that doesn't work for every organization. That doesn't work for every material type. It doesn't work for certain categories, um, even certain sizes of organizations. Um, we're we're going to have to figure that out to in order to scale even further and to grow sort of our mission. But there's a fine line, right? I mean, a lot of what we're we're going to have to do is is almost create the system that touches the linear economy just enough and and aligns with the KPIs, the the objectives, other things of a linear economy enough to grab hold of it and try to steer it back in another direction. Where's that line? Um, and, and, and how do we start to really speak the language while also guiding others away from it? Um, what practice at sort of the, maybe the corporate, um, level, uh, maybe even C-suite level, um, have you all had to engage with where it's like, Hey, we know that this is the direction you're going, but this is how it's good. This is how you'll actually get to, um, a better yeah. outcome. Um, and something that might actually, um, uh, allow you to enable maybe more resilient supply chains in a 10 year frame, not a five year frame. If you're doing it in certain other contexts, how have you had to navigate those sorts of conversations again, where you're aligning yourself very briefly with sort of linear objectives, but then trying to bend it back around. 
That's, that's a great question and really meaty as well. There's yeah. so many facets in there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I might need you to prompt me to come back on stuff as I meander off down the rabbit hole. Um, I, I want to start with the, the, one of the points you, you made there, though, about the sort of resilience in supply chains. I, I've got a big bee in my bonnet, a kind of working hypothesis yes. around supply chains and resilient business resilience. And, and when we think about some of these meaty topics like climate change, biodiversity collapse, um, businesses need to start thinking differently about their risk and their resilience planning in the next five to 10 years. Uh, again, my back of an envelope working hypothesis. Yes. Um, and this is where I, I kind of fold in some of that social impact that we spoke of uh, at the sort of top of the conversation before we started recording. Um, that. When we think about global supply chains, and I'm not a supply chain expert either, when we think about global supply chains, they start somewhere. And I would say typically, if you think about, I don't know, any products, the clothes we're, we're kind of wearing, yeah. when, where, where they first got stitched, the fruit and veg we have in our, in our refrigerators, where they were first picked, um, you know, your, your smart device, where was the first component laid? Go, go even further back, where was the first rare earth metal extracted from these communities at the start of our supply chains are the ones most at risk from climate change over the next 10 years um unicef published a report about two months ago uh something like in the next two decades a billion children are at risk from negative consequences of climate change a billion children yep. so that's not just children then necessarily in developing nations it's in children in developed nations as well. And these folks, the start of our supply chains, generally speaking, when we think about the farmers, the stitchers, the, the miners, you know, they're the folks who, who have the least amount of resilience um, to, to climate change, to um, access to, to clean water and clean food, to access to education, to sanitation, to regular clean energy or just conventional energy. These are the people most at risk. So if you're a business where your supply chain is based fundamentally at the bottom on these communities, unless you start focusing on the resilience in that community, that indirect resilience in the community, in 10 years' time, um, the bottoms will start to fall out of your manufacturing um, models, right? So, so for me, there's this idea that we need to start thinking beyond what we see right in front of us and think down through, um, down through the supply chain. Um, th there's also another bit here around, you know, how do you get people to make that shift? How do you get people to make the change? It comes a little bit back to that sort of storytelling, meeting people where they are. You can use legislation. Legislation says, business X, you have to do this, and you have to do it in this part of your supply chain, and you have to do it elsewhere. Or else. That's Or else, right? And, and that can be punitive. That can be, you know, you then lose access to markets. It can be fines. It can be you know, all sorts of mirror things. And, and as we all know there's a spectrum of kind of compliance and, and, and everything else that goes with it. Some of these work really well as a carrot. Some of these work really well as a stick. And also sometimes they don't. So legislation is important to create the right framework to encourage businesses to do the right thing or at least shift towards a better model. 
There's, in, there's sort of consumer demand. You, you and I both know, Guy, you know, the concept of reuse, maybe even two years ago, right, wasn't at the tip of people's tongues when they thought about stuff they could do differently. I can now go into my local town. I live on a small island on the south coast of the United Kingdom. I can go to my local town. There's a, there's a reuse shop. There's a shop dedicated to folks taking their own packaging. All the major supermarkets in the UK now and across Europe have elements of lines that have a reuse um, component to it where you can take your own containers in. Coffee shops, Costa, Starbucks, you can take... So two years ago, even you know pre-COVID, okay, the very, very, very evangelical did that. But there weren't financial incentives as a consumer, you know, 25p or 25 cents off a, off a cup of coffee if you take your own cup in. You know, these things help encourage that behaviour. They help normalise that behaviour. And then there's lots of other points in the question, but one of the other points I want to come back to is this idea of scalability. I've, I've recently stepped away from this concept of scalability and actually favoured more for replicability. Because the challenge with scalability means that you just need one solution and you just want to pump that solution up until it covers a particular geography, a particular industry, a particular vertical, a particular product. But as you and I both know, you know, different geographies, different cultures, different infrastructure, different buying behaviours and patterns, different nuances means that you can't just carbon copy and expect the same thing in different countries and in different industries and in different verticals. Take one very specific example, um, sort of deposit return schemes really don't work that well in the UK, mm. but work really well in some Eastern European countries. And that's a bit of a sweeping generalisation. But again, there are cultural differences that mean that deposit return scheme works really well in that part of Europe. But actually in the UK, you need to do something slightly different. Similarly, state to state in the US, there are deposit yep. return schemes, there's extended producer responsibility, but there's not that you know, federal level legislation. So again, legislation helps, consumers help. But then businesses need to identify why are they doing this? What is the reason they want to do this? And, and, and to one of your earlier questions, you know, folks come to the table because they want to do the right thing. Folks come to the table because their competitors are doing it or folks come to the table because legislation says they have to. And I'm ambivalent as to why they get to the table. The fact that when they're at the table, that's when you can have the broader conversation about why this is important. And I'm curious who's coming to the table. Um, you know, what, what we often find is it, it might be, uh, well, you have a host of, of, uh, stakeholders that need to come to the table when you're actually finding a solution. There's no panacea. Every state, you know, every department needs to be involved. Um, what we are, you know, always hoping for is that more sustainability departments uh, are, are uh, given more power, um, are given uh, purchasing ability within an organization to find mm -hmm. solutions. But routinely often, uh, you know, we're finding that, um, uh, th that's not the case. Um, they are empowered to find solutions and to bring them back into the business and to work them into priorities of the business and priorities of the operations. Who do you find though is really at the table though that can make those purchasing decisions? Um, is that the CFO level? Is that a COO level? Um, is that, again, uh, just to break it down even further, the finance, the operations, is that facilities? Is that some sort of marketing team? Who's really coming to the table and having these hard conversations? Yeah. And actually, are they sitting at the right table? Because that's the right problem, right? Yeah. Are, they, you know, when you sit there and go, who's, 
who's who's coming to the table we'll, we'll post kind of cop 26 and the flurry of yeah. 2030 2035 2050 zero strategies that everyone put out with no no kind of real yet roadmap of kind of how we get there you know this we know where we are we know we've got to get to we can create this lovely strategy that as one person summed it up to me if i don't solve it this week i'll solve it next week because the the deadline's not till 2030 (laughs) and that for me kind of encapsulated a lot of the mentality coming out of cop 26 um i think it's got to be all those people, right? This is these are complex problems. They can't just be solved by the boardroom, who set out a strategy, but then don't help the implementers to implement it. It's got to be your your kind of senior middle managers who are going to implement it to understand why this is important and what it means for them individually, for the business, for the for the resilience and risk for the future. It's got to be your you know, the, the doers, the guys and girls on the shop floor, why is this the vision of what the business wants to do? Um, but then your supply chain, like even if you're Google, you don't control all elements of your of your supply chain. So, so you need to bring these partners in. You need to collaborate pre-competitively to bring them on that journey. Because if you just say, this is now the standard, guess what? You're going to lose a whole diverse proportion of your supply chain if you don't take them with you. And then also you've got to educate your consumers. You, t- you know, take someone like Coca-Cola, who many, many years ago said, if we, if we produce Coke in clear bottles or green bottles or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The customer's still going to buy it. Brands have a power to influence and influence correctly. So who needs to come to the table? Everyone. The marketing department, procurement, the board and strategy, your CFO from a kind of new funding model, your innovators, your sustainability folks, but actually, this has to be an agenda that sets across the whole of the organization. Some of the best examples I've seen, actually, of implementation have been through what I describe best as kind of guerrilla movements. Yeah. You know, sustainability professionals who may be in the two or three within their department, within their organization, seeking out the other champions who don't have necessarily um, sustainability or circular economy or... Um, CSR in their in their job title, but care and care about their sphere of influence and want to connect. And, and I've seen some really great examples of businesses create a circular to zero strategy based on that groundswell of, it, of the noise in the machine just getting so loud that the board can no longer ignore it. Not that they were ignoring it, but, 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 but it takes on a life of its own. So I think it is, again, just just helping to understand where people are and then helping them to amplify that message. What have you seen then from the first steps? I think sometimes even we, we've seen the same thing of, of a incredibly passionate um, professional who takes it upon themselves to now uh, give themselves a second job in, in coordinating new efforts and new initiatives internal to an organization um, that's a great first step. So anybody who's listening, you can do it. Like that's, that's possible. We've yeah. seen it. Um, but what else do you see as sort of the, the first steps? Um, and let's take it through sort of maybe the frame of reference of a, maybe a CPG, um, or a consumer packaged goods company or some, t- you know, some type of, um, I don't know. I mean, you, you all work with it. You've in particular worked with a lot of these companies, um, and, and guiding some of these conversations. What do they care about the first step? most is it a research is it um is it 
engaging with their supply chain, trying to bring everybody along. Um, and once they've got 80 out of 100 yeses, they, they take to the next step. What's, what's sort of that first step that an organization could take? Um, and, and why is it important, uh, frankly, to either work with, with you or, or someone else, but you know, have somebody like a, like a Pixera global advisor on, on sort of that, that journey? It's the most important question, I think, that, that any organization can ask itself. And it's where a lot of my conversations typically start. They, you know, they will come to a conversation because they know they need to do something different, but they don't know where to start or what to do. Like organizations such as yours, such as the MacArthur Foundation, Pixera Global, there, there are so many of them out there have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years across multiple geographies um, articulating the reason why this is important. We've, we've almost shifted. It's not wholesale, right? You, you can't, you can ask people on the street. They might be able to tell you why it's important. They're conscious about what they do, but they won't explain it in terms of a sector economy. And that's also all right. We shouldn't get hung up on specific terms, yeah. specific framework. It's actually the principles. Why is this important? Why is this important to you, to your business, that sort of thing? But, but the thing I see most often when, when folks come to those conversations is you've got to understand why this is important, why this is important to your business. Is it, and, and own that as well, right? Is it because legislation says you have to? Is it because you want to leave a better legacy that, that under, you know, unpicks the damage and the, and the impact that your organization has had over the last 5, 10, 20, 100 years? Is it because your consumers are saying, if you don't do that, we're no longer going to buy your product? Again, I'm ambivalent, but you've got to understand what is the reason why. And once you have that reason why, that's that's how you build your strategy. That's how you build the structure from there. It's not necessarily just about hiring people with the right job titles. It's actually fundamentally, why does this need to be important? Is it important because we want to be here in five years' time? Because if we don't, the market will shift and we won't keep up. Is it because we're not keeping pace with our, with our competitors? Is it because we want to set a first mover advantage, we see an opportunity and we are action that. So what is that reason why? The second point I think then is where can you have some quick wins? Um, I hate the term low hanging fruit. So that's why I say quick wins. Um, IDEO have this really great methodology around um, beacon and bridge projects. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I will get this slightly out of context, but the way I understand it is there's a spectrum of, of kind of projects or approaches and they say one end is the beacon and the other end is the bridge. The beacon is exactly as what it says on the tin, right? It is an inspirational product, an inspirational procedure, an inspirational business model that allows people to look at it and go, I get it. It might not be perfect. It might not be fully circular or fully regenerative, right. but it's a lot further along than the current incumbent. The aha moment. And it allows... The, the, yeah, sort of the catalyst, yes. This is, this is possible, this is profitable, this is with purpose. And at the other end of the spectrum is, is the bridging project, something that's baked into the fundamentals of an organisation. Might not be quite so sexy, but sets the conditions for the next stage of that journey. And businesses need to fluctuate between those two points, depending on where they are within their particular industry, based on legislation or consumers or every other you know kind of nuance that comes with it. But they need to be agile and be able to, to understand when they they start on that journey, they may get a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years down the road and say, right, we need to shift direction again. Because, you know, to, to one of your points before, 
the narrative evolves on this topic as we understand more, as we get more into the depth of the knowledge um, and the theory. Of course, our perspective evolves. So then our, our actions have to have to evolve. So I think the really important thing is starting starting um, with your reason why, understanding what are your quick wins, and then thirdly, enabling your people. Your people are your biggest assets in the fight against this this current sort of challenge. Whether it, you cap it as reduction in CO two, you know, human capital gets talked about a lot. How do you unleash? Your human capital. How do you how do you unleash those folks who care about this stuff, but it isn't in their KPIs? How do you set up so it could be? How do you create a space for them to hold the community and, and drive that further? And, and ultimately, none of us are experts in this space, Gar. None of us, right? Some of us are just slightly further along in our own kind of journey, but none of us are experts. So we always have to challenge our own thinking with the realities of the, of, of, of the industry, but also that doesn't stop us from um, sometimes just going, well, we're not going to get 100% research. So let's go with 40% and let's, yeah. let's co-create as we go, right? Because if we wait for a perfect answer, time will run out. Yep. This is the decade action. We head into 2022 in a few weeks' time. That gives us eight years. Um, and you don't have to read, you know, that many headlines to, to, to realize that time is starting to run out. And if we want to reverse, and a lot of this stuff is reversible, but if we want to reverse some of these challenges we see, we just have to get started. It doesn't have to be perfect, but we do have to be open-minded that it will shift and change. I think that's, uh, I could not agree more, obviously, on, on what we see. And, and often we're having a lot of our stakeholders conversations on, Let's just do something like this. You know, we could we could continue to talk about this uh, ad nausea, uh, but why not just try something small um, and and go forward, yeah. work together, um, really understand the data, uh, build that out, make it replicable, um, scale it out. Um, but it's it's I think that's that's key when I when we talk about then how this actually affects the whys of these organizations and then therefore also their again their their human capital. Um, what are the differences that you're seeing between the wise and human capital, either in the UK, um, maybe some other, you know, sort of European countries, um, Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. even, and then the United States? Um, what, you know, what do you see? I, I look, you know, it's, it's amazing to hear you say that there are reuse stores um, that are focusing on either packaging or something to that to that degree. Well, we don't have a whole lot of those here in the States um, yet, um, but I think, you know, they're growing and we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, zero waste packaging stores. It's that type of, um, of opportunity here. Um, but what are you seeing on, maybe we can talk macro, you can even have in some examples where you're having conversations or you've had conversations or can see themes developing in UK and broader Europe and then the United States. Yeah. What are the differences? Um, and then really, how does that play into scaling sort of these these circular systems, whether that's a, a keeping material out of landfill, so a reuse system or some type of remanufacturing or refurbishment system. What are the broader themes here on, on actually scaling this across mm -hmm. these different regions? You're not pulling any punches, are you? I'm we're, not. We're, we're getting straight into we're it. Into it. It's, it's, it's Always. We're getting into it. Um, but but I, I'll start with, you know, Reapley, right? As an example, we were talking about this before we, before we sort of started recording. You guys over the last few years have just gone from strength to strength. And that's that's indicative of how this narrative has moved on from focusing on 
large you know assets within universities to, to everyday consumer products right this this idea of stuff has value it has value financially emotionally labor costs ip heat energy embedded carbon it has value but sometimes we can't always see that value so so actually helping folks to see where that value is be it in their you know on their bottom line within the supply chain with the, the actions they can take as consumers is it is a really good is a really good starting point to, to shift some of some of this yeah this it's, activity it's in that transparency right i mean that's often where that action exactly. can happen is once you see the problem once you really understand it it can really then I, I mean now you're you're connecting dots for me on this it connects you back to that why but you need to see yeah. probably um the elements that you know probably Aren't, don't play out as well as in a, we, we don't have a connected economy. Um, again, the, the linear economy is, is, is actually quite disconnected. And so once you start to see those issues, then you can start to connect those dots. You can put together your why and create your plan. And sometimes connecting those dots is you can only do that if you can pull yourself out of your kind of bias, your, your kind of day to day, pull yourself out to 35,000 foot view or higher and say, actually, you folks across the industry are all talking about the same thing, about the same problem, but all trying to solve it in isolation. Yes. Imagine the impact you could have if we made, you know, we brought you all together and solved for an industry. And we've seen lots of examples of that, right, around organizations working with competitors um, or traditional competitors because actually they see um, the opportunity in redesigning the landscape, redesigning the opportunity um, to, to uh, as a way of creating that market resilience, reuse, yeah, remanufacture, repair, keep it. You know, the again, all of these topics come with a whole tranche of um, educational sort of support and, and understanding that needs to go with it. It's 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 all good and well to kind of say we're going to do this particular activity. Um, and almost to contradict myself from the previous the previous answer, the beauty of systems change, the beauty of the world we live in is it is magically complex. And every time you pull a lever here, you can't predict the other two or three levers that are going to move in six months' time. So action is important, but it's action with a mind for understanding about the consequences, the unintended consequences that happen. And to your point, data is key. And again, I'm not a data scientist, I'm not an expert in data, but I get the idea if you can create transparency, if you can create um, an understanding of where a particular product, a particular molecule, a particular substance, material is going, you can predict what its value is against that that sort of commoditized economy. Um, So data is apparent. Data is king, and we need to understand that, but we need to understand it in a way that doesn't, detract from the problem we're trying to trying to right. solve again is getting this perfect solution i think it's something i heard something a few months ago that that even the leading client science uh, climate science that we have now even the smartest folks in the world it's based on models right it's based on our best guess it's based on an informed position but it's our best guess we don't know for certain and, and the scientific community had this very kind of, you know, open arm policy of saying, we're not going to get it 100% right, but this is the best perspective based on everything we know yep. and everything we've known to this day. 
But we're not going to wait to have a, you know, a perfect hypothesis. We're just going to experiment and we're just going to push forward and we're going to be creative and we're going to form new alliances and new partnerships and we're going to make new products. You know, this is how we see innovation and change by allowing folks the, the ability to innovate and, and to, to bring some of these very creative um, you know, ideas to the forefront and make them a reality. And they might not be perfect, but what they will do is create that system that allows us to get to the solution we need to get to. Um, I, I sat in a, a conference a couple of years ago and, and, and there was a group of um, systems designers on stage talking about this idea of creativity and, and how we've, we've lost, partially we've lost the art of the kind of zany um, because margins are so tight, because KPIs are so important, because growth at any cost. You know, we've never, ever said, what is enough profit? The system is set up to generate the maximum amount of potential of profit at any time. And, and, and what really kind of painted a lovely picture for me was this, this chap said, um, when we think about, we think about glo- global challenges, when we think about climate change, biodiversity collapse, what if we put the entire world's population on a third of the planet? What if we used another third of the planet to grow all the food we need and manufacture all the stuff? And what if we left the other third for the planet and the birds and the bees and all the species? And he said, that would never happen, right? It would never happen. But what if we allowed ourselves to sit in that space for a moment and think about those radical ideas, allow us to just swim in those creative soups that then bring out these, these kernels of new innovation that we see day-to-day within the startup community, that we see day-to-day within the innovator communities, that are actually the solutions we need. We can't solve the problems we face now with, with the, the models and the products we've created in the past. We can't use the data of the past to solve for the future. So we need to get much more agile. And the really exciting and interesting thing is we're doing that at an alarming pace. Yeah. Blockchain, Internet of Things, digital enablement. There's still huge pockets of a digital divide, both in developing and developed countries. But we we have the power to do that now. We just need to give, cut ourselves a bit of slack that we don't need a perfect solution all the time. We just need a better solution than we've got right now. I love that. And it speaks to, again, continuing creativity, continuing innovation, um, and then also just being good with the ambiguity that, hey, this could evolve um, and that our our models will need to evolve as we learn more, as we can uh, sort of grow and continue to address other systems. At the core of it, it's because circular economy, sustainability, it's not a destination. Um, And we're going to have to continue to, to learn and grow in order to best serve uh, all the other levers that we undo um, when we when we start to uh, actually uh, create some change and, and, and modify the our current system um, well we're, we're at time and and thank you so much for for spending the time uh, walking us through this I think it's it's been amazing to I think uh, better understand where you come from um, in this world um, and and also I you know I'm very familiar with Pixar's globe Pixar Global's work um, and and I'm excited to hear that this is where you are sort of taking your next step of your journey um, in mm. terms of uh, you know really advocating for more growth um, and more inclusion in, in Europe. Uh, can you give us some more details on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, again, I spent the first sort of three and a half years of my space focusing purely on the economics, the economic rationale. 
and that's still really important but you you know my my, my thinking has evolved in the last six months since being with Pixar Global around this idea of equity and equality and social justice and diversity of voice and diversity of thinking and actually we can't expect those folks who historically haven't been at the table to now automatically have the right tools to, to step in like we, right. we we've created these these kind of barriers over time historically we push people out that you know we've only had conversations with folks that look like us and think like us and and that sort of thing but as I said at the top of the conversation, you're only then creating a partial solution. You're not creating an enduring solution. You're creating one based on how you think about, around your own bias. So what I'm really excited about, about the work with Pixar Global is, for me, getting into my own narrative, my own understanding, my own biases, and, and kind of stripping those out a little bit. But then specifically, as an organization that's that's kind of based in the US, but as, as country offices in in Africa and India and Latin America and China, um, helping them to also build that out in, in Europe. So one of my big focuses over the next 12 months is to do exactly that, to establish an office for them in Europe and to help them and, and us then create more of a, a socially inclusive journey for the clients they work with in Europe, but also look for new opportunities and new conversations. I see a really interesting shift in the conversation and in the narrative to start to include social impact yep. environmental justice just transition you the, the voices on the face yeah on, but on the face of it are just words right they're just right. lovely adjectives and colorful words that we can use but actually again to the to one of the previous conversations how do we dig into that how do we make this real how do we take it from the why to the how and and i, I i'm seeing a huge amount of um, conversation around this at the highest levels of business within Europe. I think actually, you know, historically folks have talked about the circular economy journey and how maybe Europe was slightly more mature than the right. US. I think when we think about social inclusion, when we think about environmental justice, when we consider the, the, the you know, all of the nuance that came from the Black Lives Matter movement, I think the US have been doing this very well for a long time. Um, it's, you know, certainly my experience over the last six months or so has been this, that kind of narrative, that approach is in every conversation, in every decision. Europe is just waking up to that. And that for me presents a really amazing opportunity to look at these challenges and effectively shift the way the system operates. Mm -hmm. So if I can, if I can influence one person you know, in a, in a position where they can do, in a position of privilege where they can do something better and solve for their own organization's purpose. So this idea of sort of shared value, creating impact within a community, but also creating impact for the business, that for me feels like growth that is restorative and regenerative and enduring. So that that's a really exciting spot that I find myself in right now. Uh, it has been a pleasure to... to to, to <laughs> had, no to have a conversation with you again it's i know it's been some time but i'm, I'm i always look forward to catching up um and, and seeing what you're up to on linkedin and there's more to come for us um and and yeah, and, and i think uh we you know hopefully we'll get to be working more together um in the future and and then also including more people and solutions um so yeah. uh, again james um I, I look forward to to speaking soon and thanks so much for uh for being on the on the podcast today 
Gut, thanks very much. Great to catch up. Um, Merry Christmas. Yes. Happy holidays. Yes. Um, yeah, good, good to catch up. I'm, I'm signing off in this week. So this is the, I've, I've been looking forward to doing this with you, good. um, over the last couple of weeks, but no, thanks very much. And, and again, as you said, like very much looking forward to working with you and the team, um, as we drive forward into 2022 and beyond. Excellent. Thanks, sir.